I mean, he just adamantly refused to be consigned to any movement at a period of history when everybody was, was putting a button on their lapel and joining one movement or the other. Hello and welcome to the Ear Fuel Podcast. As always, I'm Joel Freemark and you can find me on Twitter at at the Daily Guru and at Get Ear Fuel. The podcast itself is in the iTunes store under Ear Fuel and at SoundCloud.com slash Get Ear Fuel. What you heard at the top was part of my conversation with filmmaker and actor Alex Winter, and he's putting together a killer documentary on Frank Zappa, and he's got a ton more going on with that. The vault has been opened. We will dive into that, though, right after a quick album review. Today I want to check out the new album from Lucius, and it's called Good Grief. This record had a ton of hype leading up to its release the other week, as their debut album a few years back became an unexpected underground hit. So if you don't know Lucius, they basically blew up kind of out of nowhere a few years ago, and they went from playing small shows here in Brooklyn to opening for the likes of Mavis Staples and even Jeff Tweedy, so people fell in love with them fast and hard. They're basically a duo who both sing and have matching outfits and hair, and at one point they went for this Eurythmics-era Annie Lennox haircut look. There are also three other musicians in the band, but it's primarily about the singers, Jess and Holly. This record, this new one, has been highly anticipated by a lot of people, as it's got some big names producing on it. Sean Everett, Bob Ezrin, there are a lot of people who are involved that should make this album spectacular. Those two people producing and the trio of band members behind the vocals deserve a ton of credit. They are the superstars on this record. Musically, this album is very, very good. The instrumentals underneath the vocals are so solid. In terms of flow, diversity, and grooves, they nail it on almost every single track. However, Good Grief is one of those cases where I could mostly do without the vocals, but I dig the album because the music tracks that back it are so solid. There's just nothing special about these vocals. I mean, they can sing, don't get me wrong, but it's not a voice, a tone, or an approach you can't easily find in many other places in really any other time period. I really hope that we haven't reached a point where there's so much artificial substandard music that will fawn over anyone with legitimate talent. More to the point, Jess and Holly go well past the point of paying tribute to their favorite singers, and instead, it comes off more like they're just copying them outright. I mean, the number of songs on this album that could, again, fit perfectly with that Eurythmics-era Annie Lennox, I mean, we, we get it. You're really into that, and you grew up on it, and it's a heavy influence. Maybe next time, a bit more originality would help. Also, the song My Heart Got Caught on Your Sleeve is basically a secondhand Adele karaoke performance, and it's obvious. They may not have been intentionally going for that sound, but that is 110% of what it is in every single way, and you just can't get past that. I just kept writing the same thing when I was doing notes on this album. Vocally, it sounds like one really long song, and yeah, I'd rather hear an instrumental version of this record. In fact, I'd really like to hear an instrumental version of this record. I guess it sort of felt like a third-rate version of about half a dozen different female singers from the last 30 years, and at the same time dressing up like Devo and playing with a band they're trying to purposefully overshadow but really shouldn't. Oddly, though, I don't think this is a terrible record. I really don't. It's just, 
well, once you've gotten to the third song, you kind of understand everything there is to offer. The song Truce comes up late in the album, and it's definitely worth checking out, as is the album opener. But beyond that, there's really no reason to delve deeper here. Do not believe the hype that this record has already gotten tons of. It's worth about six minutes of your time, and then move on to something else. Moving on. Frank Zappa is beyond a musical legend. It almost goes without saying. He's an institution onto himself. Strangely, though, there's really never been a definitive documentary made about the man, and Alex Winter is going to be the man to do just that. But there's a ton more going on with this. In short, the Zappa family has given Alex access to Frank's notorious vault, which contains thousands upon thousands of hours of unreleased music and video and interviews and all sorts of stuff. There's just so much music history in there, and Alex has put together a Kickstarter project to basically make sure none of that gets lost, that it's all preserved properly and quickly. Quickly. You may know Alex from documentaries like Dark Web and Downloaded. If you haven't seen those two, make those the next you see. You must see them. And he also starred in films including The Lost Boys, and he was Bill from the Bill and Ted movies. We linked up via Skype last week, so sit back, relax, and get excited about all the Zappa awesomeness that is to come. I guess, you know, where, where I wanted to start was kind of your own musical upbringing, kind of your earliest memories of music, you know, kind of what your family was like in relation to that. Uh, I came, you know, I grew up in a, in a pretty eclectic family, art, sort of artist-oriented family, but uh, my brother was a musician. Uh, well, he is a musician, but he started playing music when he was very young. He was a classically trained piano player who now plays like blues and rock piano, and nice. um, and he's older than me, so... You know, there was a lot of really good, interesting music around the house. My parents were both dancers, and uh, I was born in London at the height of the British music scene in the mid-60s, nice. and um, have a lot of memories, early memories of, you know, playing vinyl and, and having uh, this experience with, with music, um, all different types, really all different types of music. I think uh-huh. it may be, may be one of the reasons I really really always appreciated Zappa was um, my parents were, you know, they were uh, choreographing to everything from like, you know, Stockhausen and crazy, weird 20, you know, atonal classical composers to Uh rock, uh to rock and blues and whatever. So all that stuff was around the house and I was very, very young. Very, very Um, cool. But I got, you know, I got turned on to Zappa, not by my parents, but by like, you know, I, um, I moved to the Midwest when I was in my early childhood. And, uh-huh. and Zappa was, you know, despite all of the, the general perspective on him today that he was kind of a cult performer and all this, he was a mega star when uh-huh. I was growing up. And uh, not everyone loved his music and everyone got it, but he was absolutely huge. So, you know, he was one of the few big rock icons when I was really young. Um, and someone turned me on to Hot Rats and Chunga's Revenge when I was yeah. there. <laughs> and those are the ones that I have really, you know, I, I came to love Freak. I was too young for Freak Out. Sure. When it, but um, I, you know, sort of circled back to that one. I love that one today. But I really kind of, when I got on the ride, was around that time. Was uh-huh. around was around Chunga's, I would say, um, you know, post Hot Rats. But I loved, Hot Rats was around my, my brother's friends, you know, people around me had had that one. And I loved that record. I loved Chungas. I loved sort of the, that kind of early, um, late sixties, early seventies. Zappa was the stuff that I got into. Uh, and then, you know, I, I got, you know, I started to grow along alongside it with apostrophe and the, the sort of more latter seventies stuff. And, 
his SNL you know appearances and were really seminal for me in my childhood because you know there weren't that many TV channels and in those days SNL was just something that you just always watched sure, and sure it was literally like the Super Bowl it was just uh, when SNL was on everybody stopped what they were doing and they watched SNL and so I saw both of his his appearances on SNL and I mm -hmm. remember they they really had a big impact on me simply because you know he he was like this kind in terms of like the cultural like the place that they that they occupied in your in your your cultural life they he suddenly went from just being this really bitchin musician to occupying that space that like George Carlin and Pryor and Cheech and Chong occupied sure. and that was a very strange very uncommon thing for a musician to to occupy that space and so I remember like seeing him on SNL thinking, whoa, there was just way more to this individual <laughs> than I ever imagined. So that was really my impetus for making the doc was that it had never been done. No one had ever, ever told Frank's story in a documentary. Mm -hmm. And I really felt like, like the time was, was really right in terms of the, the type of culture we live in today that I think is more, um, you know, due to the internet is more eclectic by nature, more, less compartmental, more accepting of of somebody who was so proficient in so many di seemingly divergent areas of, of, you know, American culture. Mm -hmm. So with, with, with what you're just saying about how it'd be kind of more accepting today, but obviously the way that people experience music today is so vastly different where people don't really sit down and listen to an album from beginning to end. Do, do you think that people can kind of have the same understanding of the Zappa music, hearing it kind of out of context? Like if you I do, uh -huh. yeah, I do, and I'll tell you why. Because I, I agree with you, because obviously there's, there's no doubt that what you're saying is true. However, where Frank is concerned, I think it's actually a little different, because I think that, um, you know, I, I personally think of Frank as more like a Gershwin or a Stravinsky than I do mm. like like a Elvis Presley or even a Lou Reed, okay. right? Sure. And I think that, or if you want to look at albums, you could look at the Beatles or, you know, uh, Beach Boys, or I'm thinking of bands from, you know, from that era that made an album that you really needed to hear the whole damn thing sure, together. Sure, sure. Um, whereas I, I honestly don't feel that way with Zappa. I mean, I feel that way with, with some of his classical compositions, Okay. but I don't feel that way with, with most of his stuff. In other words, you can listen to Chunga's Revenge, just that track, and it'll blow your mind. I mean, sure. it will, you do not need to hear everything before and after. I would argue the same for Hot Rats. I would argue the same for The Yellow Shark. I think that other than his classical compositions, which I think are actually best heard in one gulp, mm -hmm. um, I don't feel that with most of the rock out or what, you, what most people would classify as rock albums, I don't think it really works that way because I think that Zappa was such – and this is probably the biggest misconception about him, is uh -huh. he was such an unbelievably brilliant composer. Yeah. And he was, his, his compositions are so uh, rock solid in terms of their architecture that one unit of them goes a long way and really is an experience and like a journey that you go on. And you could sit and work on that puppy for a little while. Before, oh, yeah, sure. Before, before it's like, it's almost not to say it's too much uh -huh. to listen to a whole album. Cause I don't feel that way at all. And I, you know, I listen to like hot rats beginning to end all sure. the time. Oh, very, yeah. very happy. But, um, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, it's absolutely imperative. I think that you can, if you hear, you know, uh, Penguins and Bondage or something like that, or, you have, or something, you know, from, from any of the, even uh, the earlier records, I think that you get, you get a sense of his genius and you mm -hmm. get a sense of, of, if you're really listening, 
you get a sense that there's something going on there and it will lead you to more. It just will. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and that that's kind of there is that that aura and that that status that his music has been vaulted to where um, I know a lot of people are kind of they're they're intimidated by Zappa because he has that very challenging kind of a, appeal to him. How do you kind of introduce people to Frank's music? Because, you know, it, it is it is purposefully complex. You know, where, where's kind of your gateway uh, gateway song or your gateway album? I don't I, I mean, I would say that that, you know, Chungus is probably a good gateway song. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's accessible. It's rollicking. It's compositionally complex, but it's not overbearing. It's funny. Yeah. You know, it's entertaining. That's really, uh, I would say, a pretty good one, a pretty easy one. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd say that, you know, I say most stuff off apostrophe is a pretty easy way in. It's a very, very listenable record, I yeah. think, accessible record for, for the average Joe. So, I, you, know, you know, if you ask me a song, I'd say Chungus. If you ask me an album, I'd say Apostrophe. Along that lines, do you, do you have a favorite song and or album? Can you oh. choose just one? The impossible question. No, there's no way. I yeah. mean, I, I have like my top, because someone, you know, I've been doing a couple of interviews today. Someone sure. asked me my top five Zappa albums, and uh-huh. I was like, this is my top five Zappa albums in no particular order, okay. and this, this will change by probably within the next two hours. Of course. But I would say Hot Rats, uh, The Yellow Shark, uh-huh. Roxy, Roxy and Elsewhere, Apostrophe, and Bongo Fury. Tough to argue with any of that. Tough to argue uh, with any of that. Um, there's just stu- there's stuff I love. Beefheart. There's stuff in there that sort of strikes on all the different things that he does that I love. Uh-huh. Um, my favorite song. It's really hard to say. I mean, I love Little Umbrellas. That you know, if I had a gun to my head, there's a <laughs> there's a simplicity to that. Uh-huh. Um, like there's a simplicity to Buckets of Rain, where you're just like, it's almost it's just it's better than it should be, given sure. what it is. Sure. But that's you know, sometimes you're you have kind of a, a subjective view of why you're listening to something. Mm-hmm. So shifting kind of from the music onto kind of his more, you know, the, the, the intellectual that, that Frank was, when did you kind of become really conscious of all of that existing kind of his, his life and his theories beyond the music? I would say that honestly, SNL, I would say that Uh SNL was the wake up call that there was just way more going on with this guy than just what he was, when he would turn around and conduct his musicians. Sure. You know, when he turned back around and opened his mouth, he was saying incredibly, incredibly astute, interesting and funny things. There was just a whole other world there, mm-hmm. you know, but I was pretty young. So I didn't do a whole lot with that other than just enjoy him more until probably uh, the PMRC. Okay, sure. Yeah. And then suddenly here was this guy, you know, with his hair suddenly short. Yeah. And, you know, that his unloading on the Senate, you know, if you just read that as a document, it's sure. so... It's like Mark Twain. It's, it is perfect. It's like, I don't know how he did it. It's just, it's so eloquent. Uh-huh. It, it's, I mean, like I would give my right arm to have him around right now oh, during this yeah. election season, oh. but you know, it's just, he was, it was like a cannon blast at hypocrisy and inanity. And I, I think that was really, and I think, you know, for a lot of people that was, I think probably for Zappa too, that's where he, he put a flag in the sand. I mean, obviously he had done stuff with Havel and, you know, he was involved in politically oriented stuff. Mm-hmm. He's, he was putting, you know, registered to vote on the back of his albums going way back to the beginning. Yeah. So, he, you know, it didn't come out of left field, but uh, he must have made, and I'm going to be looking for this as I start to archive him for the doc, he must have made a, a conscious decision around that period to step out into a, and become a, an actual pundit because mm-hmm. there's a very big difference between what he was doing before 
PMRC and then what he was doing after PMRC. So with, with the film, when, when do you did you really kind of because it's obviously a, a long work in progress. When did you kind of get the urge and say, I, I want to try and do this film and do it right? Well, I was coming off, um, you know, two movies about technology back to back. So I was very, very immersed in in these, you know, radical kind of maverick tech people. I was looked at Sean Fanning and, and Napster with the with downloaded and I was yeah. sort of immersed in Ross Ulbricht's trial with the Silk Road um, and, the, and the Darknet. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that the next doc I was going to do, I did not want it to be about technology. But by the same token, I knew that I did want it. I did want to continue exploring polarizing and uh, controversial American geniuses, basically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, brilliant minds, sure. to put it less, in a less grandiose <laughs> fashion. You know, and so I was looking for something that was at once not tech, but still thematically within the, the area I was in, which dealt with sort of liberty-oriented political thinking and how that affects pop, you know, mass culture. Mm-hmm. And my producer, uh, a guy named Glenn Zipper, who's made a lot of really, he made a lot of different kinds of docs. He, they won an Oscar for his doc, Undefeated, but he's made mm-hmm. a lot of big music docs. And uh, he worked on the George Harrison doc and the Foo Fighters and the okay. Who yeah, yeah. and all Stuff. And, you know, and he was the one who mentioned Zappa to me. It's like, and so when we were looking at movies to do, and I was like, dude, wh- why has nobody done, why has nobody made the, the, Z- the Zappa doc? Yeah. You know, and we were like, well, let's try. So I called a family who I had some relationship with, not extremely close, but some. Mm-hmm. I asked them that question. I was like, why the hell has nobody told Frank's story? It's one of the most amazing stories in American history. And modern American history, it's never, ever been told. And they said a lot of people, you know, they have like five proposals at the moment. People are always asking them, but Mm -hmm. the family always hates what they're proposing. And uh, I was like, okay, well, you'll probably hate what I propose to, (laughs) (laughs) but let me go away and like compose a little movie for you guys to actually, you know, not talk, but actually show you what I'm thinking. And if you hate it, that's a good thing for me because I'm not going to want to do anything other than what I show you. Mm-hmm. Because I don't like music documentaries that much. I don't I don't hate them. Like some of them have been some of the, you know, like Don't Look Back is one of the greatest documentaries yeah, yeah. of all time. Give me shelter. But they're yeah. they're pretty hard to do. And they sure. usually involve the Rolling Stones. But um, <laughs> uh, Cocksucker Blues is another one that there I love. But, oh, yeah. Um, but it is really just not my wheelhouse, and um, I didn't want to make a music doc, and I basically pitched them the story not as a music doc, and mm-hmm. uh, and they really liked it, and they I think that they were looking for the type of thing that I was talking to them about, which was something that was more about the man than about just the music. Okay. Um, so that's what I'm doing. I mean, and that's why I wanted to do it, was I really, I'm really compelled to tell Frank's story because of, of what I think of the impact he had on culture and just how idiosyncratic it was for him to be where he was at that period of American history. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really interested in looking at America through the Zappa lens, basically. And and are there specific parts of kind of the Zappa story that you want to focus on because you feel they've never gotten enough exposure? I don't think that any of his story has gotten proper exposure. Fair enough. I think I think that that it's gotten piecemeal exposure, mm-hmm. but I don't think that any any there's nobody has ever taken the time to actually contextualize him. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would like to do is, you know, I think we've gotten, we've gotten stuff that, you know, we got, a, we got, I think the best closest thing we've got is the thing Frank did, which is the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the Frank Zappa book is great. And that's my favorite thing out there, you know, otherwise. And that's, you know, it's got humor, it's got politics, it's got music, it's got a sense of, of, you know, what it was like to be in America at that 
at that time, but I've never seen anything contextualize them. I mean, I've seen, you know, cool, you know, so somewhat shoddy documentaries about the mothers of invention. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Roxy and elsewhere doc that came out last year is absolutely phenomenal. It's mm-hmm. actually, I'd say an underrated world-class music documentary. It's just absolutely fantastic. And it, I don't know how they quite pull that together because I know what footage they had to work with, but it's, that's amazing, but it's not biographical at all, sure. obviously. Um, and there's a documentary coming out this year, um, which I think is excellent actually called, uh, eat that question, which is what they did was, I thought was really smart is they, they are just looking at Frank's relationship to the media. Okay. Uh, it's an extremely specific, uh, point of view. And it's actually a great compliment to what I'm doing, but nobody has really gone. Here's this guy who grew up in this kind of family, in this kind of culture, went to these kinds of schools, like this kind of music, you know, dealt with the military, dealt with, the, you know, the government, dealt with the, the, you know, and refused to be consigned to any of these groups. You know, Bill Graham tried to get him to move to San Francisco and join his movement. And he was mm-hmm. like, San Francisco's filled with hippies. I fucking hate hippies. I'm not going <laughs> to San Francisco. I mean, he just adamantly refused to be consigned to any movement at a period of history when everybody was, was putting a button on their lapel and joining one movement or the other. Mm-hmm. And that's that, that type of context I've just never seen. It's really fa- I think it's just incredibly fascinating. So uh, the other big thing you have working for you is that you have been given access to the vault. How big is the vault? I mean, you know, we see, you know, there have always been photos of it, but I mean, it, it just seems like this never ending cavern. Uh, if I thought anyone would get it, I would call this documentary Iga Vault. <laughs> Honestly, I swear to God, it yeah. was like it was like the good news is we're giving you access to the vault and the bad news is we're giving you access to the sure. vault. It, it is so fucking huge and expansive and, you know, and it's funny because people are so snarky on the Internet. Like, well, why didn't the family preserve? Why do you need their money? You know, why didn't this all get preserved already? I'm like. It's going to cost hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to to archive this stuff. And the family has been archiving it for, you know, 20 years, but they've been focused on, you know, unreleased music content and stuff that Frank actually composed that Mm -hmm. they were worried was going to die and that would be the end of his music, which that that couldn't happen. But there's no way on on earth that a a family-run operation, which is what Zappa Inc. has always been, could possibly have taken this thing on. So... Dude, it's it's just it is so overwhelming. <laughs> it's, there is, I mean, it's just shelves and shelves and shelves of of audio, multiple track audio, rehearsals, um, pristine concert recordings that no one's ever heard. Um, oh, you know, interview, video, visual, video interviews that he did hours and hours and hours that nobody's ever seen. Wow. Ho- home movies, art. Super 8 films that he made, 16 millimeter stuff he did with Bruce Bickford that has never seen the light of day. I mean, it, it just goes, it goes on and on and on. It's in every conceivable. It's DAT tape, three-quarter, D1, D2, one-inch, half-inch, Super 8, three-quarter, 35 mil. I mean, it's just endless. And, you know, and given Frank's, you know, bar of quality control, it's yeah. like, you know, I know that pretty much everything in there is going to be worth looking at. So... Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a huge, I mean, that's why I did the Kickstarter was, you know, I said to Gail was like, you know, this is amazing and we will make one good movie out of this. And you guys will probably make 400 after I pass away, (laughs) but, but it needs to get preserved. Like some of this stuff is really fragile and really needs to get digitized immediately and properly archived. And, and I need to sort of like run congruent what you guys are doing, but from a more historical preservation perspective, Mm -hmm. 
Um, and that's where the Kickstarter came from was like, let's get money in hand right now so that I can prioritize preserving stuff that I know has a shelf life that is, it may be getting near past. Sure. That may not be the stuff they're prioritizing because they're prioritizing the music and the commercially oriented stuff mm-hmm. more because they have to. So, so the, the Kickstarter is kind of a combination of getting the movie done and just saving all of this, this, this history that's in the vault. Yeah, I mean, you know what? It's not a sales pitch when I tell you that it's actually the other way around. Okay. The, the way the Kickstarter is, the Kickstarter came into being fundamentally because of preserving the vault. Okay. Obviously, I have people offering me money to make the movie. I sure. don't have to kickstart the movie, but I'm not going to get money in a bank account within the next six weeks from any finance year. Mm-hmm. And I really want to be in the digitization and preservation process within the next several weeks. I don't want to wait any more than that. So the way the Kickstarter is structured, if we if we fund the 500 that we're asking for, that at that finance level, none of that money goes to the doc at all. Mm-hmm. It 100% of that that doesn't go to Kickstarter rewards sure. goes, goes to the preservation um, uh, process that we're starting. As we, if we start to reach stretch goals, it starts to a preserve more of the vault, but also it starts to feed in towards my production budget. And I start making the movie. Mm-hmm. It's, it's entirely possible that if God willing, we fund our 500 ask and no more than that, then I'll still just be going out for conventional funding for the doc. It won't be impacting my doc at all, okay. but, I'll, but I'll be able to start preserving the uh, the vault. So so it's 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 a mission to save history. hundred percent. That's 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 fantastic. The the other uh, very interesting part of this is that you also kind of got the Zappa house to to kind of offer out if anybody wants to pony up the cash. How how did that come to be? Well, it was you know it seems more outlandish than it actually is. You know the the kids have all grown up and they all have their mm-hmm. own homes and sure. their own lives and and the house is absolutely enormous and. It wasn't just going to sit there empty. Uh, so they were going to sell it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we proposed to them was, look, if you're going to sell it anyway, and it has so much historic value to the fans, why don't we at least offer the fans first dibs on it? Sure. So basically what the Kickstarter, what the crowdfund does, by offering it through the crowdfund, uh, we're offering it to Zappa fans before it gets offered to the general public through the real estate thing. And that allows the fans to also help us to preserve the vault at the uh-huh. same time. Okay, cool. How... how- do you have any idea on how long, you know, assuming you hit the 500 mark, do you have any idea how long it's going to take to at least get everything out of the vault and kind of cataloged and everything? Um, you know, it doesn't, it, it, what happens is the process is that people come to the vault basically. So we don't have to like, we will start that process immediately. Like okay. literally the day that, you know, as frankly, as the Kickstarter winds down and I see what we're going to make basically, and I have some idea, you know, because we're already in talks with, you know, very high end uh, preservation organizations that are going to be doing this work with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course the family is overseeing it. It's not like I'm doing it separate from the family. Sure. So, you know, we're in talks already. So the idea would just be to get moving basically as soon as that money hits the account. Um, do you think you'll be able to, you know, so you're, you're going to make the dock and then obviously there's just going to be these hundreds and hundreds of thousands of hours of video. Oh, definitely and, thousands. Oh, definitely. thousands. That's, <laughs> that's such a wonderful thought. You know, are you going to maybe try and have a hand in what happens to some of this stuff once it's archived, you know, into maybe how it's presented or, you know, um, in the documentary, use some of the footage that's already been um, uncovered and things like that? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the 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 implication is that, you know, that's material that can be that can be, um, you know, properly preserved and, and packaged 
that's material that can go into museum and, you know, historical legacy environments to be properly, you know, exhibited and shared with people. It's, it, it's just, it's just saving an archive. You know, the archive doesn't then get like, the archive isn't owned by Universal Music. You know, sure. Universal Music is, is their distributor for the, the Zappa catalog. But, you know, this stuff is going to be, is going to be able to be properly distributed and, and exhibited. Well, awesome. Uh, I, I cannot wait to see all of this archived footage. I cannot wait to see the documentary. And um, I, for one, am very, very happy that someone who is a true fan of music and Zappa is going to tell the story so that it is told right. Yeah, thanks. It's, uh, it's a fun journey so far. My thanks again to Alex for making time for me. You can follow him on Twitter at ALX Winter and definitely go follow Zappa Movie. Check out the Kickstarter and kick in. This is all about preserving music history and it is well worth some dollars. Before we call it a week, though, I do, of course, have your weekly Ear Fuel assignment. For those of you new to the podcast, each week I assign an album to listen to in full from beginning to end without any distractions or interruptions. It stems from the idea that these days music has been largely relegated to a background task. You're driving, you're at work, you're at the gym, whatever. And this homework is about consciously listening to music for the sake of the music alone. And this week, your assignment is Flower Traveling Band's 1971 record, Satori. That's S-A-T-O-R-I. Now, if you think that the gray space between psychedelic and funk and metal and kind of proto-punk was only occurring in the U.S. and the U.K. in the late 60s and early 70s, well... You're wrong. The sounds coming out of the Japanese underground uh, during that time are in many ways even better than what was going on elsewhere. Satori is a shining example of that as it's 42 minutes of monster guitar riffs, crashing drums, and a vocal that fits perfectly with the, the controlled chaos that spins around for the entire run of the record. The guitar work here is nothing short of masterful, as it ranges from massive power chords to some of the finest soloing, many of which I have to think were early lessons for Eddie Van Halen. The rhythm section is just as locked in, spinning these brilliant grooves underneath everything else. Flower Traveling Band, they, they slide in and out of heavy trudge sections that will delight both headbangers and those who dig technical mastery alike, and you're often left in sheer awe of how much sound and power they deliver with just four people. If you're into the first half dozen Black Sabbath records, you're going to fall in love with this within the first three minutes. I guarantee it. But that is not an exclusive statement. There's King Crimson-esque moments here, parts that are a bit like Rush in nature. Hell, you know what? There's even sense of Deep Purple and the Stooges and countless other bands on this album. In many ways, the melting pot that was music in 1971 is perfectly captured here as they bring together so many genres that were just beginning to separate themselves from one another. To be honest, Satori is just one of those records that once you hear it, you're going to pass it along to everyone you know that digs music. And, and you just have to keep cranking this one up more and more as it gets better and better every time you play it. It can be a bit tough to find this record, but I do know it is available on Spotify if you search it by the album. So go get it right now. Thank me later. So that's all for this week. My thanks again to Alex Winter for making time for us. And you can find me on Twitter, as always, at Get Earfuel and at The Daily Guru. The podcast is available on iTunes under Earfuel and at SoundCloud.com slash Get Earfuel. And hey, if you dug things here, go tell a friend or three. That is your weekly Earfuel. Share and enjoy. Enjoy.